podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Decidedly not top of the table, but a uh, step forward from last week, or from last weekend at the very least. Yeah, I would say a small step forward, but a step forward nonetheless. Um, we are not top of the league. We are, in fact, ninth in the league, solidly in mid-table. But if we were to win our game in hand, which is against Chelsea, we would actually jump Chelsea and be fifth in the league, which, you know, isn't dreadful. Uh, We are, however, 11 points behind Arsenal. They have played a game more. But this weekend, we face them at their place. They're top of the league. They're full of confidence. They've made an impressive start to the season, but I would suggest that they've had about as easy a run as it's possible to have, bar their last outing, which for me was the first time I've actually been in any way impressed by what they're putting forward. Yeah, they definitely had a a very, very routine start, and a lot of those points you would expect them to get whenever those matches were played. I mean, I think before the season kicked off, we looked at it and we suggested like maybe Leicester was the only real one in the open in sort of five games or so. But as we know, Leicester have had an abomination of a season themselves. So even that one was it was fairly routine. Um, I think by the time of the international break came around, the first one I sort of said, you know, they should be either at or near the top. And really, there's only going to be one big test for them, which was, of course, the Man United game. And the first time they played someone who should realistically be looking at finishing in the top half, they lost that match. So that was a bit of a a question mark against them still, I think. They didn't really manage the game too well. I didn't think they played all right, but they didn't manage it very well. They gave up chances at silly moments, at, at, at silly ways that they could have very easily prevented. But like you say, the Tottenham game was a, a very, very different kind of test against a manager who knows what he's doing. And definitely, I think there was a lot more fight from Arsenal than from Spurs. There was a lot more aggression and intensity and everything that you need in a derby. Plus, they actually had the attacking quality on show as well. And I think that that's uh, probably one of Arsenal's two big strengths this season has been the the quality on the ball in the final third. And um, We'll speak about that and the individuals within it as we go along. But that's... Um, Definitely the the most impressive aspect about them, uh, the the movement and rotation of positions off the ball to an extent, the bravery that they have in possession and when they're going forward. And they have a couple of people who are being very, very clinical at the moment with either the final pass decision making or the actual shot as well. Yeah, I think the the most impressive thing is you mentioned it 
before the Rangers game, I think, or it might have been on the Brighton podcast after the Brighton Raw, about the movement among that attack and how how good they are at rotating between positions. And you'll see Gabriel Jesus drift wide and Martinelli takes up that central role. And it's very fluid and it works. It fits. The players don't look like they've just drifted into an area that they're not comfortable in. We see rotations between Saka and Odegaard, where Saka at times will slot into the number 10 position and Odegaard picks up a a role wide on the right. It's very Manchester City. It's like a budget version of Manchester City in many ways, but it has been very effective for them this season. And when we look at the games that they've played in the Premier League, they beat Crystal Palace 2-0, and we obviously played Palace in the next game and struggled. Uh, They beat Leicester, but to be fair, everybody beat Leicester. They beat Bournemouth. They struggled with Fulham, as we did, but they overcame Fulham and beat them. They beat a bad Aston Villa team. They lost to Manchester United, and... I thought, I saw a lot of Arsenal fans and a lot of people say, oh, Arsenal deserved to win that game. I I don't know what they watched, Carl. I saw Ten Hag pull Oli Bull back into the mainstream and I thought he schooled Arteta, to be honest. I thought Arsenal looked really naive, didn't think they had much of a game plan, didn't think they knew what to do when they went behind. Arsenal bounced back, they beat Brentford, and then they beat Spurs. And while I do think we were robbed of a a good last half hour of that game by the red card, it was absolutely a red card, I still felt Arsenal were much the better team when both sides had 11 players. Oh yeah, comfortably. I don't think Spurs really got into that game at all. I think Spurs, a lot of matches this season, have... Sort of started the the same way that they did in this game, like quite deep, quite in their shell, happy to soak up a bit of pressure and then look to counter afterwards or look to play that ball into Kane and then the the wide forward spin off him. But they didn't really get going. They didn't really do that too well. They didn't cope too well with Arsenal being like right in their faces and very very aggressive and high upfield and everything. Um, I don't think that Spurs ever really took control of possession high upfield for any significant period of time. I think there was only really one spell in the first half where they had any kind of sustained uh, build-up play. And like I say, Arsenal have been like really clinical as well. That's, that's It is definitely a thing to note, whether that's sustainable or whether that's because they've got people in those positions on a regular basis and they can keep doing that. Uh, obviously, we'll see as, as the season goes on, but they're doing it at the minute. And that is a, a very impressive thing, uh, even if the build-up play is not always got to be absolutely scintillating to get and key people into these really, really dangerous areas. And Spurs didn't really have any way to stop them doing that. That was it was quite a, a surprise, I think, from from a, a Conte setup in that this season as a whole, actually, not just the Arsenal game. I think Spurs have been like very rigid in where their lines are and where they engage, uh, build up play, and where they try to stop people playing through but not necessarily running through them. And Arsenal really did exploit that. I think on the Man United game, if we just touch on it really briefly, I don't want to linger on a match which is like three weeks past. I, I actually agree with the word you said, naive. I think Arsenal approached that match and tried to play it the same way as they have done every other single game. And mm. 
Ten Hag was like perfectly happy with that. He, he absolutely didn't care. You look at Man United this season as a whole, they are bottom, I think it is, for final third pressures on the ball. And yeah. they are 19th for middle third pressures on the ball. United do not tackle. United do not press or engage right. or anything at all. They sit deep, they sit in shape, and then they will hit you on the break. That's how they've had yeah. success at the moment. And Arsenal completely played into that. They carried on doing the same things in terms of, again, something we'll touch on for the Liverpool match, uh, the runners from midfield, where Grant Shacker's obviously trying to push really, really high upfield this season. It's leaving them one against two, one against three at times in midfield if one of the opposition forwards drops back. Uh, the fullbacks obviously try to get reasonably high, not ridiculously high, but reasonably. And the actual front line of three, let's say, or four, don't always track back uh, relentlessly, let's say. So United absolutely let them play the way that they did and just exploited it. And I, I think I understand when Arsenal fans are probably saying they deserve to win, I presume it's because they think they had more of the ball, more of the ball in attacking areas, more of the ball to possibly create chances, but didn't actually score enough with it. Whereas United had like four attacks and scored three goals, whatever it was. Yeah. So I understand why they're saying it, but they're wrong. They are wrong because Arsenal had that much of the ball because United let them have the ball. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like you said, they didn't bother engaging with them until it came into sort of the edge of the middle ter- middle third, the edge of the United defensive third. And then they just took the ball off them and countered them. Um, and I-, I thought Arsenal's defence looked very, very shaky, not just in that game. But at other times when they've been really pressured, when teams have really gone at them, I think that Arsenal defence has looked shaky. Now, Ben White is playing right back. Um, He's getting a rather strange amount of praise for being basically a poor man's Tomiyasu. Um, But his his ball-playing ability is useful in that role because he can be a recycling option for them. He's a good out ball. He's decent at carrying the ball. But you put him up against Luis Diaz, and I think he's going to have a very difficult afternoon. On the other side, Zinchenko is playing left back, but he's playing it basically as another midfielder. You mentioned Xhaka stepping forward and how advanced he's playing. He and Odegaard are almost playing as two number 10s at different times. And... Zinchenko is slotting in to fill that left-sided midfield role, which does leave big open spaces in behind him. Now, teams haven't exploited them. Barry United, on a couple of occasions, we saw Fulham do it, and Fulham were quite unfortunate not to get a result in that game. Um, The two centre-backs have been interesting. Saliba has gotten a lot of praise, and I have been impressed. But... The games where it's really been put up to him, in particular that United game, he has looked like a very young centre-back still finding his feet. I think the one whose form has been questioned the most is Gabriel. He's had a couple of shaky games. Um, Their defensive record is impressive. They've only conceded eight goals. It's the joint second best in the league. But defensive record at this point means very little, uh, especially when Everton have the best defensive record in the league and when you've played an easy run of games. I don't think that defence is as good as it appears, Carl. And I think if we can 
if we can take the game to them, I think that defence is there to be exploited. You know, usually we do this podcast um, talking quite a lot about the opposition and then go to Liverpool late on. Maybe this time, and because we've got to this point, it's worth doing it the other way around because we've obviously... Liverpool are habitually the same game after game after game, but this season, not quite so much, and hopefully, right at the minute, even less so. So, is it worth talking now about our build-up play, how that changed against Rangers a little bit, and how we think that we can get at these fullback areas in particular? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. So, in that game against Rangers, we played with a front four. Now, Watching the game, I thought it was a 4-2-3-1 because Jota was playing behind Darwin for the majority of the game. Klopp says it was 4-4-2. I'm not sure I agree with that, but he's the one that sent it out there, so we'll we'll go with what he says. It made us more compact in attack because our attackers weren't spread out as far. They were able to get quite close together. And what that allowed them to do was to interchange position and passes very quickly. It gave a lot of freedom to Mo to work infield, which is something he hasn't had in the 4-3-3 this season. It meant that we didn't have anyone in those areas who wasn't a threat to score. Like... When we've been playing the 4-3-3 and that right-sided midfielder has been Henderson and he gets himself to the edge of the box, he's not really a threat to score. He's Over the last seven years, he's averaged less than two goals, again, two goals a season. So he's not really a threat to score. So he's not doing anything more than sort of taking up space. He's not occupying defenders because defenders aren't worried about, worried about him. But when it's Jota and it's Darwin in those central areas, and Diaz is breaking central, and Mo is breaking central, all of a sudden, defences have to be much more aware of where each of them is. And if we put the four of them up against a back four, there is no room for double teams, for cover defence. You're 1v1 against four lethal players. Yeah, I mean, matching up 1v1 is going to be a very very brave team to do at some point if they think that that's uh, how Liverpool are going to set up. Um, obviously, the, the bigger question here is, do we think Liverpool are going to retain that system? And we'll get to that maybe a little bit later on. Uh, I mean, Jota, I think, was actually probably his best performance in about nine months for us, to be honest, against Rangers. And we do probably have to, in every single... Thing that we talk about in terms of Liverpool's positives have to temper that with it was Rangers and that is a big difference uh, but considering that we also struggled against Crystal Palace and Fulham and Brighton and Man United and all these other mid-table mediocrity sort of sides none of whom are going to be challenged up for silverware I think you still take the positives as for what they are and for what Liverpool did on the ball as much as anything else uh, so Jota I think his performance was much, 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 much better in terms of where he was able to pick up the ball. He definitely did drop between the lines and be a little bit deeper to, to take possession in build-up play. But in his running, I think getting him behind was very, very good. That was second forwardy, if you, if we like to, to term it that way, anywhere between a, a 2-3-1 and a 4-4-2. It was very, very similar, I thought, um, Jota's role to how 
Dortmund used to set up back in, let's say, prime Klopp sort of days at that club, uh, where he obviously would have had a number nine, Darwin being a bit more mobile and channel running probably than Lewandowski would have been at the time. But the second forwards, whether it was Royce or Godse, quite often would be very, very high upfield as well alongside him. Uh, able to go into both channels, able to go out wide and swap with one of those players if he wanted to, but you'd also see him drop off out of possession as well. So it was very similar in terms of his old, old setup. I think that if we are to keep um, the same system for the Arsenal match, it's basically going to be one of those front two. I think, you know, obviously you can play Jota anywhere across that line of four, basically. Uh, I don't expect that it would be Darwin and Jota start for the Premier League games against the top two, basically, as they are at the moment. But the link-up play was a lot better. The rotations of positions was a lot better. Because, As I said before, the Rangers game, I don't think we've had any rotation of positions, really, uh, other than maybe Diaz going centre-forward for a little bit. Uh, In-game this season has been really, really quite poor in terms of our uh, up-front mobility in the final third and making defenders make a decision as to who they're going to follow and all the rest of it. So that was a, a big improvement. It was quite notable that the build-up play was effectively sentiments giving it to the front four and almost letting them do what they need to in terms of combination play because obviously the fullbacks were not as relentlessly high upfield. They certainly weren't both high upfield at the same time, which in a four-three-three they almost always are. And I think it had to be a little bit more instinctive between the four of them in attack, but that's not necessarily a bad thing when you're not playing. You know, an elite defence, let's say. Do you know what Jota and <clears throat> Darwin reminded me of? And you're right, it was Dortmund, but it was earlier than the Dortmund you're talking about. It was the first title-winning season when he played Lewandowski as the 10 behind Barrios. Lucas Barrios was the 9 in that first title-winning team. And... Robert Lewandowski played behind him because he'd arrived at the club as an attacking midfielder, not so much as a striker. And Barrios was really, really good for Dortmund at the time. And Klopp loved him, loved the way he occupied defenders, loved the, the movement, the power that he had. And if you look at them physically, Barrios and Darwin are very similar physically. They've got similar attributes. And Barrios, for those two years, scored for fun at Dortmund and Lewandowski was more of a a link player but he had incredibly good poaching instincts and that's obviously what led to him moving forward into that number nine position and becoming what we know him to be today that's what it reminded me of now the wide players were a little bit different than what he was using at that point uh, at Dortmund because Kagawa played quite a bit in wide areas in that first title-winning season, and his style of play is different to anything we have. Gotza obviously played in the other wide area, and then you'd have the likes of um, Blakowski and Groskowitz, who were kind of more grafters, who would rotate with them. And I, I really did like the the idea of Darwin and Jota. I I would have preferred it with more of a a technical player, you know, someone who's a bit more creative, a bit more naturally 
naturally inclined to pick out his teammates with a, a through ball or, you know, a little slide rule pass or something like that, whether that was Bobby or Fabio Carvalho. But the way he worked it, it worked really well. And I do think there is scope to work on developing that as a pair, Darwin and Jota. Darwin is a front two forward. He played in a front two at Almeria. He played in a front two at Benfica. And he plays in a front two for Argentina. Learning to play as a nine and four three three is an, an adaption for him. Something he's going to have to work on. But I thought he just looked so much more comfortable when he had a fella up close to him. Like, when he's played in the four three three. Diaz has been breaking central a lot, but that's often resort. Uh, it's often ended up with Darwin having to go left. We saw that against Everton for like twenty minutes. Klopp put Diaz through the middle and stuck Darwin out in the left, and it made no sense. Uh, he made might have had a plan that going to go for cross field balls or whatever from Trent to Darwin. But, I mean, Nathan Patterson's a big unit at right-back for them, and it was a very pointless thing. He's not had Mo anywhere close to him because Mo's been out, I don't know, making sure the grass is kept nice and short down the touchline. This made more sense for Darwin, and you could see it in his performance how much more comfortable he was. I thought it was the best we've seen Darwin look in terms of fitting into the team since he joined. Oh yeah, by a mile. I think the number of times he, even the shots he didn't, uh, sorry, the, the, the times he didn't get to take a shot, he made loads and loads of runs spinning off the defender's shoulders. And it didn't really matter, actually, on this occasion that they played a back three. He was able to find little gaps between them. He was able to uh, constantly make those runs off the shoulder, even inside the six-yard box. It's definitely between the width of the penalty box and the uh, six-yard box. We did a lot of channel work there. Lots and lots of anticipation that through balls were going to be coming either from Jota or from Salah quite a few times as well. He didn't always get them. Uh, I think the other good thing that we saw in terms of, uh, shall we say, future productivity, even though he didn't score, every single one of his shots, really, really instinctive, every single one of them on target, caused a lot of saves. They were straight at McGregor, which is you know a, a slight annoyance, let's say, because he went with power a lot of times maybe with obviously a bit more confidence or a bit more uh, match rhythm. Some of those are a little bit better placed or or less reliant on power. But even so, they were all on target, all made the keeper sort of work for them pretty well. So I think that those were the real positives for for Darwin. His movement, his link-up play was pretty good. The cutback, which went to nobody, I thought was a pretty good cutback, considering he wasn't looking. It was good anticipation of where people might be. And generally speaking, I think that that was, a, again, for him, a decent step forward. I wouldn't say anybody in the team, anybody of the, of the team, the shape, anything at all, had leaps, but good steps forward nonetheless. Yeah, I agree. Um, now, I know that as a, a Big J journalist, an egotistical Big J journalist, you don't listen to podcasts that you're not on. But I did say on Raw after the Rangers game to Trev and, and Jim, it, it almost felt like we've been working with Darwin on his shooting and he's almost working under the instructions of just get the ball on target. You know when you coach kids and you're doing a shooting drill, 
and you'll just say to them, just work the goalkeeper. Don't worry about anything else for now. Just work that goalkeeper. And I, I kind of feel like that's what we've done with Darwin because when he first joined, he was obviously getting a lot of chances and he was snatching at them and he wasn't making great contact with the ball. And now it feels like, especially well in that game in particular, he is making good contact with the ball. He is focused on, let's just get this on target. Let's just make contact with this ball and work that goalkeeper. And if he saves them, fair enough. But one might sneak in. Because yeah, sometimes in the earlier games, it felt well. like he was... Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, that's ex- if, if a goalkeeper makes a mistake, and there was no reason to think McGregor wouldn't, because he's made a number of high-profile mistakes over the last three or four years. But to, to his credit, he did have a very good game, um, McGregor. I thought he was... The only reason we didn't win four or five was, was him. Um, but it just feels like... On, on, oh, go on ahead. McGregor as well, um, I actually had the thought, uh, this is completely made up, so maybe that, not the case at all. But McGregor obviously is not the most agile of goalkeepers. He's very you know strong and obviously really good wrists and holds his position fairly well and all the rest of it. But he's old. You know, He's not the most agile of goalkeepers. I think probably at least one of those shots that he had, which were you know, within a hand span away from the keeper, probably goes in against a, let's say, better goalkeeper because they anticipate that it's going to go into the far corner and make a move. But because McGregor has stood up really, really late on all of them, not made an over-movement as such, he's, he is in place to save them. So I don't, you know, it might not be the case at all, but we see a lot of times keepers try to anticipate that it's going to go far corner or yeah. step a little bit further over like the hair does to leave, you know, six miles at his near post, that kind of thing. I think another goalkeeper probably concedes one of them by virtue of being uh, better at what a goalkeeper should be doing, you know? It's like that Darwin has not hit them well enough, but probably not as well as you might expect an inform forward to do so. Yeah, I think that's actually a very good shout. Because he is that that bit older, and and he is older than me, so I can say he is old. Um, he is relying more just on his on his positioning than anything else. Like he's not he's not able to rely on his athleticism as a goalkeeper or, or his reflexes or anything like that. He has to basically just be in the right position and hope that the ball hits him, basically. And that that is what happened. He he just caught himself in the way really well. Um, I will give him huge credit for the save from Jota. Even though, again, he was stood up, it was great reflexes to get his right hand up and make that save. But, I mean, that little moment was a great example of what Jota can do, arriving that little bit later in the box, timing that run really, really well. And if we think of the best Jota pre-Liverpool, it was obviously playing just off Raul Jimenez. And those two had a really good partnership as well, like Darwin did with, with Ramos at um, at Benfica. So, yeah, I, I would like to see more of this. I don't know that we'll see it against Arsenal. I have a feeling he might revert back to the, uh, the 4-3-3, which, you know, it, nobody really wants to see. But, but... If Trent and Henderson can be as positionally disciplined as they were, which was rare for that one of them was that positionally 
disciplined in a game. For both of them to have been, they must have been under very strict orders of if we see you in the center forward position, you're immediately coming off. It's not even going to be a question. You're going to be hauled off. If it's the first minute and you're up there, you're coming off. But if those two can hold their positions like that, then Trent is giving you almost that third man in midfield anyway. And Costas obviously played a little bit higher than Trent, but again, wasn't over committing to get getting forward. He was probably on average position about 15 yards deeper than he had been against Brighton. It does give you still a bit more of a compact defensive shape where you're almost playing, you know, a defensive block of four in the two centre backs, the two midfielders, the full backs supporting them and cheating on a little bit. But then the front four left to do the majority of the final third work. Yeah, I think if you split broadly, usually last season, previously, 4-3-3 system, we basically have a four defenders, six forward split, and occasionally we've even tried to push that to a 3-7. But against Rangers, it was very, very clearly 5-5. It was one fullback or the other was in support. Both centre mids were behind play. As long as it was obviously not coming out of our penalty box, then both our central midfielders were, were very, very... Um, diligent, let's say, about the positional work. I, I, I would say that there was a couple of good moments from both of them in terms of forward passing. Um, it wasn't oh, yeah. that it didn't contribute to the attack at all, nothing like that. But positionally, they held behind play. And I think that that was a, a very, very big difference in terms of being able to win the ball back quite quickly. And obviously, the, when you add in Trent not being as high and as central as well, it's uh, it's just it looks a little bit more balanced off the pitch. It's probably not at the very highest end of the game the most magical wizardry tactical stuff imaginable, which might get you a a goal against the most organised defence. But at the minute, that's not Liverpool's concern. At the minute, that's not what Liverpool need. This was a I think Trent said after the game basically a back to basics, and that's very very much what we are in need of at the moment. A couple of results, a couple of performances, a couple of showings to demonstrate that we know where things have been going wrong and that one way or another we're trying to fix them. Whether we get back to how we were doing things and trying to improve on that previously, right now we need quick fixes which don't stop us winning games but do stop us conceding so many chances. Exactly. Exactly. We need to, we just need to be harder to beat. Like there's this myth of Liverpool, the attacking juggernaut who swept aside everybody in Europe and the Premier League. And look, we did sweep aside teams in the Premier League, but we won the European Cup and the Premier League based on the strength of our defence. Based on Alisson, Trent, Gomez slash Matip, Virgil, Robbo, Fabinho sat in front of them, and Ginny to his left. That group of six player of six players sorry, seven players, seven players. That was the reason we were so successful. Mo and Sadio obviously putting up incredible numbers, Bobby doing Bobby bits, and Henderson playing a more attack-minded role in midfield. Now, not not nearly as attack-minded as it's become in recent years, but he was the one that would get forward and join the attack uh, more so than Ginny, who would sit in next to Fabinho 
form that double pivot, allow the fullbacks to get forward. And we'd have that block of four, two centre-backs, two holding midfielders sat in front of them. We were just impossible to beat because you had the pace of Virgil, the pace of Gomez, the reading of the game of Virgil, the reading of the game of Matip if it was him there, Fabinho, obviously super intelligent player, Ginny, one of the most intelligent players in the world, all of them knowing where to be, when to be there, when to step out, when not to step out, what passing lanes to block off, things like that. Just little basic things that made us incredibly hard to beat. And we went up against, you name it, we went up against them and they couldn't score on us. Like we went to, went to Munich and they just couldn't do anything to us. Once Henderson got hurt and Fabinho came on, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't play through us at all because we were just so diligent in our defensive work. Now, we have lost a big part of that with, with Wijnaldum being allowed to leave and not being replaced. Hopefully that's something that gets uh, addressed in January. But those fundamental principles still exist in this squad. Thiago is outstanding defensively, and it's always overlooked. Like, that guy is a genius passer of the ball, but he's brilliant defensively. He's a really good tackler, times things really well. I know in in his first season with us, he picked up a lot of yellow cards, but that's because he was playing as a lone six in a midfield three with no support. Man had Henderson and Milner either side of him in a couple of games, and those two just wanted to get forward, and they were being instructed to get forward. But Thiago's really good defensively, and I thought he showed that against Rangers. I thought it, his defensive work was outstanding. One is tackles. One is jewels, one is aerials. I think he had 13 recoveries in the game as well. Like, he's such a smart player that he can do a lot of what Ginny did defensively and obviously gives you much more on the ball. Uh, Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that however Liverpool play, he's one of the most important players that we've got now, Um, which... While we therefore need him on the pitch all the time, does mean that we have to protect him as much as possible at all, um, as well. Sorry. So I, I assume over the coming weeks he's going to be a player who starts nearly all of them, but doesn't finish very many of them. I would say if we're in a position where the game might be won, maybe he's one of the earlier ones to go off because we need him on the pitch as much as possible. As as contrarian as that sounds in those two sentences but if we're a couple of goals up you'd like to think that we have other players who can help us hold that lead once we're not playing like idiots uh, and therefore he's then available if he misses the last 20 minutes of one game he's available to start the next one that kind of thing he is unquestionably one of the most important which brings me to the next point I wanted to make Um, a guy who usually is extremely important but this season has been individually quite poor but in a team context, massively exposed as well, and didn't play against Rangers, and that's Fabinho. I think Fab has been hung out to dry by the tactical shift, which has enabled the right side of midfielder, whoever it's been, Henderson, Naby, um, Harvey, over the last, I wouldn't say just this season, I'd go back to last season with this, that right-sided midfielder was playing as part of a front four last season. It just was. And Fab was being asked to cover extraordinary amounts of ground. 
extraordinary amounts of ground. And with Trent playing high as well, we were often in a situation where the right-sided centre-back had to cover out to right-back, which meant Fab not only had to cover right-side midfield and holding midfield, he had to drop in and cover centre-back as well. Now, that's one thing when Virgil is superhuman Virgil and can do a bit of everything. It's one thing when it's Ibu, who's that right-side centre-back because he has that incredible recovery pace. Matip doesn't have that pace, and it's not Matip's fault, but when Joel plays behind Fab, Fab is left with far too much to do. And Jürgen had a big old temper tantrum at him on Saturday because he was getting dragged to the left and then he was having to cover back. But he was just been asked to do far too much. I mean, I, I assume by now everybody has seen the clip where we have the ball from a throw-in and our front two is Henderson and Trent. And there's an enormous, massive fucking, I don't even know what you'd call it, of space. It, it was, it's that big you couldn't even name it. A in front universe. Of Matip, a, a universe of space in front of Matip. And Fabinho is it's where he should be. Like, Fabinho's in the right position. But when the ball breaks, when Brighton just take it off us, because that's what Brighton did, he's the one that has to go and cover. And it's just, it's it's not, no player could cover that. Like, N'Golo Kante couldn't cover that amount of space. Let alone Fabinho, who has always had mobility issues. He's never been the quickest or most mobile. But when he's been asked to do this much, it, I mean, who, who, who could possibly have done what he was been asked to do? And yet he's the one that gets the blame not the players that are evacuating their own space to go and, and try and do something that we know they're not going to do. I have a fairly short list of people who could do that job. Batman in the Batmobile doesn't count. Okay, well, there's no, there's no, there's no cars involved at all or any other kind of vehicles. But you, you're Super, on the way Superman now. doesn't count either. Superman. Superman. The, the Flash. Flash. <laughs> Quicksilver. That's about it. <laughs> what was the fellow's name that had the horse? Um, oh, he had Tonto. Was it Tonto? Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, you know who else? The Lone Do Ranger. The, the Lone Ranger. Do you remember the Lone Ranger? He, he Speed of the Puma, if I'm not mistaken, to cover across. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's just, it, he, he got blamed. And I do wonder if it was misplaced sort of anger with Klopp, where, like, Klopp, Klopp is a very, very, very clever man. And he has to know that the biggest problem this season has been the tactical approach, which is not his tactical approach. It's Pep and Linder's tactical approach. It's what Linders was doing at NEC. And it failed there, and it is failing at Liverpool. And I do wonder if that outburst at Fabinho was more about Klopp's anger with himself for going with those tactics, with Linders for suggesting those tactics, and probably writing that fucking book as well. But Fab is, 
is becoming the scapegoat for the failings of others, including his captain, who is has been the biggest issue from a player point of view this season, but had a 7 out of 10 against championship-level Rangers, and now all is forgiven, and BT dedicated their post-match to him. Right. That seems like a good moment to um, see who you think should and will play against Arsenal. Because I think that these should be similar, but not the same teams. So who you would play and what system it would be? I think I would stick with four, well, four, two, three, one, four, four, two. Mm-hmm. I think I would, because I just think you get more of a threat. Now, I don't know that I'd play the same individuals in that front four. Obviously, Mo starts. Obviously, Diaz starts. But I do think there's legitimate questions over which players occupy those front two spots. I think I would be inclined to go Bobby as the 10 and then either Darwin or Jota. Now, I think Darwin is right on the verge of finding his goal-scoring form. I think when he gets one, I think we will see him go on a run and score like 8 and 10 games or or 9 and 11, something like that. But Jota has this kink about him. He's a kinky man. And he loves nothing more than to inflict pain and suffering on Arsenal and to dog-walk their centre-backs. So you could talk me into either of those as the front man. Bobby is the 10, knowing Bobby will drop in and give that midfield a third man when we need it. And he's got that bit more technical proficiency in that number 10 position, which I do think would would help us. So I would go 4-2-3-1 with Bobby behind one one of the other two. And I presume you keep in Simikas Matip the defensive line. Yeah. Now, I I was hoping Kanate would play against Rangers. Yeah, it's not a game to bring him in for this one. But you can't throw him in against Arsenal. Like, you, you could have thrown... I mean, look, Mio, you could have played at centre-back against Arsenal. Or against, against Arsenal, against Rangers. <laughs> they, they didn't provide any threat. I mean, they didn't attack at all. So it would have been a nice, easy game. But I, I don't know that Klopp expected them to be so negative on the night. Um, but it has to be Matip. It has to be Matip against Arsenal. And, yeah, I just you just stick with the same defensive line that played. The, there's, there's three question marks for me. Is it 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1 is the first one? Who plays as the nine? And then who that other player is. Because I don't think there's any chance he'll drop his captain. Now, he should have dropped him a year ago. but he And he did on and off. But he, he has him in the team. And he's had his first good game in God knows how long. So I think he'll play him. So I think in Klopp's mind, if he's going... If he's wandering between 4-2-3-1 and 4-3-3... That's the first question. Four two three one four three three. Who's the nine? And does he play Fabinho or does he play Bobby? Depending on which shape it is. So if it's a double pivot, you're going with 
Henderson start him then, you think? No, I'm not going with that. I think that's what I he know. would do. I, think, I, I know we, everybody listening here knows that you would be going Thiago and Fabinho as the double pivot. Yes, I would but go with think... by far the two best midfielders that we have because that's <laughs> but, what you would do. You think that it will be sticking with Henderson and... Um, I think Henderson and Thiago start. start. Okay. I've and got I an alternative. I think um, Klopp is going to hedge his bets. I think he's going to start the double pivot of Henderson and Fabinho and have Thiago starting as that 10, which then allows him to start in the 4-3-3 or the 4-2-3-1, but shift without making a sub because that's what Thiago's done previously anyway. It's a long way back for him, but obviously he has no problem playing that 10 oh, you could, he has You could sell me on yeah, Thiago the 10 all he has, day long. He has yeah. the technical ability and the creativity in transition play and in build-up play to be that one who can pass through I think that necessitates playing Jota as the nine then, personally, because he's a lot more uh, sprinty and behind and relentless movement, I think. I, I, I've been all week assuming that Firmino is going to be playing this game. That's why he was being taken out against Rangers. Um, and I even said that in the lead-up to the Rangers game. And I, I do still think that Firmino will start this one, but I'm not really sure what all the knock-ons of that would be, because... I do think Jota deserves to start this one as much as anything else. I think his last two games have been pretty good. Um, but I could definitely see Thiago starting as that extra one and then whichever nine starts and the same two on the sides as you picked. Yeah, I mean... I think if he goes 4-2-3-1, I think he'll play Henderson and Thiago... Bobby behind Jota, Mo and Diaz. I think that's what he'll do. I think he'll realize early that he's made a mistake as Granite Jacket relentlessly runs off Henderson's shoulder and Henderson doesn't even look at him. and just waves his arm to pass him on to somebody who's not there. Um, on, you know, I think he'll just go safety blanket and just play 4-3-3. I do. I think he'll go with a safety blanket. He might just tell Henderson and, and Trent, same fucking rules apply. Do not get into their box. Stay in your positions. On corners, Jordan, you can go forward and get your ass back. Other than that, I don't want to see you anywhere near the box. I think he's going to go four-three-three, And I think he might play Bobby as his nine and just go proper safety blanket. Bobby nine, midfield three, and just try and do it that way. And if if we get tactical or positional discipline at right back and the right side of midfield, I think it can it can work. But if he does it, he's got to let Mo off the leash. He's got to let Mo go and do Mo things, and not act like he's fucking Stuart Downing, stuck on the for, for Aston Villa, stuck on the right wing looking to get the ball, look up and just plant a ball into the box, regardless of whether our, our other players are there. I think that's what he's got to do. Do we have enough players at the minute in attacking individual form to, if we go safe and we go 4-3-3 and we go uh, not you know, all out positionally going forward and all the rest of it, if we're relatively disciplined, we're not obviously in amazing form. And we're not going to be suddenly for this game, I don't think. But do we have enough individuals who are playing all right at the minute to cause them enough problems to win this game? 
I can kind of see it individually. Like, you know, Diaz can tear white and Saliba holes all mm. over the place down that side of the pitch. And if and Mo can do the same on if the other Mo, side. If Mo gets in behind Zinchenko when he drifts in field to become one of their extra central midfield players, that's our outball every single time. Time after oh, time, yeah, after time after time. It's over time. for Gabriel. Yeah. If Mo gets Gabriel stood up one v one, it is over. There's going to be there's going to be a red card for that for that Brazilian central defender. If Mo gets him stood up one v one frequently through the game, he is going to get sent off because he will not be able to deal with Mo. I can see opportunities for Liverpool to score goals. I really cannot see us stopping all of, or even close to all of Arsenal's build up play at all. Though that's the big problem I have at the minute. Still, even if we go. 4-3-3, even if the shape is a bit better individually and the gaps between midfield and defence and the gaps in the channels at the minute, teams are getting in behind us so, so easily. Even Rangers did it. Like it, Rangers had like six passes in the game and they still got in behind us like three times. It's such a big As worry. soon as we went 4-3-3, Carl, they opened us up. As soon as we went 4-3-3, when, when, Henderson, when, um, when Henderson and Jota went off and Fab and Bobby came on, I thought I thought we'd lost control of the game for the five or six minutes before that first substitution. And they were starting to threaten a little bit. And Ryan Kent was starting to have a little bit of joy. And he sent Henderson for a newspaper on two different occasions. But when the change happened, I thought we the shape made even more sense once Bobby played as the 10 and was dropping into midfield and Fab was doing Fab things. I thought it made sense. And then he just completely fucked it by bringing on Harvey Elliott and James Milner. And as soon as he brought them on, we looked all at sea. But I think that's that's more those two individuals. Harvey, defensively, is a complete liability. And Milner is a complete liability in all aspects of the game at this point. The guy can't run. He can't run. And he made one big, crunching tackle that very easily could have ended up in a penalty. But he got run by and bypassed on two different occasions. He was all at sea when Cholek had that late chance that Ali made a save from. But as soon as we went 4-3-3, they carved us open. But I I do think if he goes 4-3-3 and he says, and he goes old school 4-3-3, where he says to Henderson, stick in that midfield role. Do not get forward. Do not abandon that midfield position. Stay where you're meant to be. Nice and tight with Fab. Thiago will do the same. And I don't want you more than 20 yards from that defensive line. And sit them nice and tight. Have Bobby drop back from the nine into that number 10 position like he used to when our midfield used to almost shift to a diamond and play Mo and Diaz in the half spaces. Not as wingers, not as forwards. In those half spaces like Mo and Sadio used to do, I think we could counter them to death. Genuinely. I think we could embarrass them in the same way United did, but worse. Because we're better than United are. Now, I know we're not playing better, but we are better than them. And we do have two of the best long, three of the best long passers in world football. In Trent, Virgil and Thiago. Who are always going to be able to find a half yard of space to get their head up and spot one of those runs. And if those two are isolated on any two of the Arsenal defence, or even if they're 2v3 
versus the centre backs and Ben White. I think they'll they'll damage them. And Bobby can get forward and support, and one of the full backs can get forward and support. And I wouldn't be committing much more than that going forward. Like I'd gladly go to the Emirates on the weekend and take a draw. Gladly. With the way we're playing and the way they're playing, I'd gladly go there and take a draw. Sit in, try and hit them on the counter. We have the players to do it if they're disciplined enough. But will Klopp go for something like that? I don't know. It's It's been a long time since we've seen Jürgen rock up to an away game and try and play like that. It's probably been since his first, I don't know, maybe 17, 18 we might have done it a few times. But it's, I think West Ham away, we did it really well a couple of times. Uh, on one occasion that I can remember where Ox played as like an attacking midfielder and Ox, Sadio and Mo just countered them to death. And they couldn't do anything against us. I- I'd love to see us do something like that. And I think we can invite them on and just beat them in individual battles. I, I think we have the individuals to stop their players as long as they have cover from behind. So if Costas gets stood up 1v1 with Saka, we just need Thiago making sure he's aware of Saka cutting in field. Costas can lead him down the line. Same thing with Martinelli and Trent. If Henderson is getting across so that Martinelli can't cut and come back in field, Trent can just lead him down blind alleys. Matip can get across. Fab can drop in to fill the centre-back space without having to run 40 yards to do it. It'll be a 10-yard shuttle into centre-back. I think we can do it. I just don't know that he will. Yeah, I mean, I think Arsenal are certainly going to try and be on the front foot from the start of the game. I mean, look at not just the the way that they've played and the results they've had this season, but how they actually set up. They are built to be in possession high upfield. That's where everybody is. I'm not really sure yet how they would cope when that is uh, forced away from them because they've not really played anyone yet who forces it away from them. The two difficult games that we've spoken about, United sat back and let them have the ball and hit them and Spurs sat back and let them have the ball and didn't hit them. So they've not yet come up against a side in the Premier League who forces them away from how they want to play. Now you would generally think that Liverpool would be one of the teams who should be capable of doing that, except for at the moment obviously we've been anywhere between horrendous and not ourselves pick whichever uh, end of the scale you want there so even with how bad that we've been Liverpool still rank like either top or second in the Premier League this season for uh, where play takes place on the pitch in terms of being really really high up field Arsenal are joint top with us in that regard we're still top for things like crossing the ball from open play for just pretty much every metric that you would expect us to be top we are in possession. Out of possession is a totally, totally different matter. Like our pressures are on the ball are way, way, way down on what they were last season, like 15% down in the final third, a little bit more than that in the middle third. This is the problem that I think we're going to have here. If that energy and that intensity is not there for us, which it should have been in, even if it's not in general um, general season-long play, in the biggest of games it should be. You should be up for playing your rivals, your derbies, your biggest matches, and so far it hasn't been. Uh, against Man United, we were rubbish. Against Everton, we were rubbish. The biggest games that we've had to come up against, we have not stepped up at all. That's my big concern here. Because like everything you just said is right. We should be able to 
lure them in. We should be able to set up tactically so that we can play to our strengths, even if it's not our preferred way of playing. But that's all off-the-ball stuff. And off-the-ball is where we've been terrible this year. The positional play has not been good. The discipline uh, out of possession hasn't been good. Mm. The intensity to press people high upfield or in the middle third has not been good. Just, the disconnect oh, in our God. press has been shocking. It's so Like, poor. you see one player go and press and just get played around, and there's no follow-up at all. Like, it's completely disconnected. Remind, do you remember when we played Spurs in Klopp's first game? Mm-hmm. And Divock was pressing their centre-backs like an absolute demon. And yet they were just playing around, and all the rest of our lads were just sort of jog- jogging up the field behind, going like, oh, we're meant to run? All right, okay. We'll figure it out, boss, don't worry. Like, it, it looked like that. You know, we've had Mo pressing, gets played around, and there's no follow-up. Diaz presses, gets played around. There's no follow-up. There's nobody coming in behind them to to aid that press. And it it's just... We've looked very disjointed this season in all aspects, though. Like, you look at... You always have a, a bunch of partnerships in your team. So you've got your centre-back partnership. Ours hasn't worked this year because they've been too far apart quite a lot. Our centre-backs and full-backs... Again, they're too far apart. Holding midfielder and centre-backs. Too much space in between them. The midfield three. Too much space in between them. Your full-backs and your wingers. Far too much space in between them. And we've been easy to play against because there's lots of space to play against us. Now, you mentioned the United game and the Everton game. And we were, like you said, really, really poor in both of them. But the thing with, especially that Everton game, Everton didn't want to play football against us. And we made the mistake of thinking that was a football match. Everton wanted a bit of a fight. And we weren't up for it at all. So they were kind of able to bully us a bit in that game. United, I think United was was an anomaly because I think if we played United now, even as bad as we are, I think we'd beat United because we'd know what was coming. Remember, United went into that game having lost their first two playing Ten Hag's brand of football. Against us, they played a completely different brand of football. They, they, Like I said, they brought back Ollie Ball. They spent all this money bringing in this manager, paid a big release clause to Ajax, Waited for a couple of months to announce him having, or to, to unveil him having announced his, his agreement in April. Waffled endlessly about his, you know, tactical approach and his philosophy and, you know, the Ajax way of playing and blah, 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 blah. He came in, he got shown up, and the first thing he did was he went digging through the cupboards at Old Trafford. He found the Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer tactical guide to management which is one page and it just says it's bullet points deep block counter-attack that's all it says nothing else and he just went this will work and he knew it would work because it had worked before for them now it's slightly different personnel but it it worked for them so that's what he did that's how he turned them around and you know when they went up against a team that weren't stupid in Man City, they got absolutely trounced, but it had worked against us. It worked against Arsenal. 
we weren't expecting it. Arsenal were naive to it. They played Leicester, who were, you know, I mean, Leicester have been awful this season. Um, they played one other game in that run as well. I just can't remember who it was. Who did they play? Oh, Southampton. And I, if you th- if you watch that Southampton game, they're very lucky to get out of there with a win, you know. But they just played us. We didn't expect it. Southampton and Leicester, not very good teams. And Arsenal, who were just far too naive. And Arsenal rolled into Old Trafford thinking, we're just going to outplay them. We are going to play our football. And if it doesn't work, we're going to play more of our football. And when United punched them in the face, Arsenal's response was, well, we'll just throw on a couple more attackers and we'll, we'll double down on our brand of football. And United just cut them up. Cut them up with ease. So... I think we'd beat them if we played them again because we'd know what was coming. I think we can be so much better than what we've seen this season. And I think Arsenal's a really good starting point for us because this game matters hugely, especially in the context of who our next league game is against. Because our our next league game is against a team who's going to play a similar brand of football, but they also have the best midfield player in the world in Kevin De Bruyne, the best creative player in the world in that same player, and then a fucking Cyclops up front who is absolutely terrifying, and he, he scares me, Carl. He really does scare me for what he could do to us. If we're if we're as naive as we have been and as open as we have been, Erling is going to get his fourth hat-trick against us. He's got, he's got another game to play before then. It might be his fifth, so... <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm ignoring that I'm completely not thinking about Man City for at least two more matches and maybe not until 20 minutes before kickoff. Um Arsenal is going to be difficult enough they have another game before we play them of course they play in the Europa or whatever it is that they're in uh, Bodo Glimt I think they play tonight so they'll probably have wholesale changes people like Holding and Tomiyasu and Lukonga and Vieira and all the rest of them probably play but I would expect, as long as there's no injuries there or anything dramatic happens, that they go back to probably just the same team as they had against Tottenham. Uh, I wouldn't expect too many changes from that at all. So, Ramsdale in goal, White, Saliba, Gabriel Zinchenko, Tomas and Chaka, Saka, Odegaard, Martinelli, Jesus. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, very quickly before we get to end of the podcast and stuff like that let's do a little bit on that front four because that's as I said at the beginning the really really dangerous bit the rotations that they have between Martinez, Jesus Odegaard and Xhaka even Odegaard and Saka that you mentioned as well yeah uh, really difficult to stop very very good in tight spaces around the edge of the box the extra thing that they have compared to other teams who are very good in combination play in the final third like Liverpool for example or Man City or even Spurs when they're playing well, that kind of thing, is that they have three individuals there who are unbelievably good one-on-one dribbling and don't mind going past the second and trying to get past the third one as well. Jesus, Saka and Martinelli are so, so good one-on-one. Um, Jesus probably uh, showing more one-on-one dribbling ability now than he did is in his entire time at Man City, presumably under instruction oh, yeah, because it's a lot more pass move and he's central player as well. It's not as boring, Carl. It's not as there's a, there's a human nature, at least, to how Arsenal play. They're not treated like robots. Does does Gabriel Jesus's dribbling style 
remind you of somebody who used to play for us because it, it gives me very yes, because yeah, yes. Yeah, it's real scruffy and bouncy, and he's knocking it off players' shins and onto his own knees, and he's by them, and he's he he is giving me. Not now. He's not anywhere close to the level of Luis, but he is giving me very serious Suarez vibes, and in a lot of what he does, not just the dribbling, but how much of a pest he Complaints. is. <laughs> oh, the the like he has he has a perma cry face. He he can score a goal, and he looks like he's about to burst into tears. The the Suarezy thing about his dribbling that really gets me as well is when he starts to do it, his shoulder drops about six feet. But it, it goes so low to the ground, yes. like he's ready to headbutt in the waist anybody who gets in the way. And that's exactly what Suarez did as well. That's why so much of it used to that bounce off a heel and ricochet back off him and everything because he gets himself so low. There's not real, not loads of movement in the ball when he shifts it. It's only a few inches each way. And it, well, and it also very, very means difficult. if you touch him, yeah. if you touch him, he's already halfway to the ground. Exactly that, yeah. If, they, if you put an arm so, out in front of you, it's going on his shoulder and it looks like you're pushing him down. Exactly. Um, it is a very good front four. Mm. It is. Now, it's obviously a young front four. Gabriel Jesus is the oldest of them, and it's not like he is, by any stretch, an old player. Uh, he is 25, doesn't turn 26 till April. Odegaard has been around a long time and is probably the most experienced of them, but he's only 23. He'll be 24 in December. The two wide boys are still kids, Bikayo Saka and Mark Nelly, and they are two absolutely outrageous players. They are sensationally gifted, and I would imagine if Jurgen Klopp was allowed to have a free... If, if, if all clubs got liquidated in the Premier League and there was an open pool of players and Klopp was sent in along with you know Pep and whoever else, they'd be given the pick of the players to sculpt their next team. I would bet massive amounts of money that two of the players he would focus in on would be Bakayo Saka and Gabriel Martinelli because they're just such Klopp players. Mm. Martinelli in particular has everything I think that Klopp would want, but I, we know he, he does adore Bakayo Saka. And I, I think Saka is really special. Like, I think he's really, really special. Of this really good young generation of English players and especially English attacking players. If I had my pick of them 23 and under, he's the one I would pick first because I think he can be a world-class right winger, a world-class left winger. I think he could be a, a great left back. He can play as an eight. He can play as a 10. I think he could play off a striker in a two. You could probably get him to play as a false nine with some work. He is just so talented and so well-rounded and so humble and like his personality and all that fits as well. Like I, I love him. If I, if I could pick anyone from that team to come into this team, it would be him. I just think he's absolutely amazing. Yeah. Don't, don't disagree in any of that at all. Um, and quite annoyingly, actually up until about a week, two weeks ago, he was probably the worst out of that front four. Not that he was bad, but he was the lowest performer, I would say, out of that front four for Arsenal. But over the last couple of games, he's actually been really good, uh, which is frustrating timing for from a Liverpool perspective, obviously. Um, but it was going to happen sooner or later because he is just a brilliant, brilliant player. I think there was a lot more 
individuality to let's say Martinelli earlier in the season compared to Saka which mm. was a lot more sort of quick build up play given it to Odegaard who was playing a really prominent role and was in great form so all of that kind of stuff uh, was was probably against Saka's overall level I think for a while but, yeah, like I say last couple of games very 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 good annoyingly and uh, I think he probably will end up as one of the most difficult players to stop when we play them, regardless of how we eventually set up system-wise, how much of the ball we have, he's a really good outlet on the counter. He works really hard. He gives good, good cover to the fullback, uh, and obviously, when he does come inside, he's he's creative. He can shoot a couple of assists against Brentford, I think it was, albeit one of them was not very assisty, as I recall. Um, just a, a very, very difficult player to stop when you're trying to spread yourself across that side. Uh, to stop everybody else as well. And like we've said several times now, the spaces between our fullbacks and centre-backs, between our midfielders and defensive line, has to be really good against this attack. Because otherwise we will it just does. get... The way Brighton went through us, Arsenal will do that, but like yeah. probably three times more and probably a bit more clinical. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, the one thing that stands against them over the course of the season is there's no real quality depth uh, in those attacking areas outside of Emile Smith-Rowe, who, again, he's he's just, he is fucking outstanding. What a player, but he's injured at the minute. And I do really like Fabio Vieira. I don't really know why they felt the need to spend 30 million on him, considering, you know, they have Odegaard, who they've made their captain. But they don't really have anyone else who is troublesome. Like, if they're looking to their bench in this game on 70, looking for someone that can come on and make a difference. I mean, Eddie Nketi is he's decent. He's not spectacular. Vieira would be the only one while Smithrow was injured because the two best players who'll be sat on their bench is Tommy Asso, who's a right back. And yeah, he'll, he can come on and do what Ben White does and he's better defensively. And Kieran Tierney, who's a much better defensive player than Zinchenko but isn't as good going forward. So, you know, that's they've got this 11, which I know he's in good form, but this 11 still includes Granit Xhaka. And if you're putting your faith in Granit Xhaka, you've misplaced your faith. Now, I say that he will score two goals on Sunday, running off the back of our midfield. And, uh, you know, he'll do that silly celebration when he cups his hands to his ears as if this wipes out six seasons of being shit. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, <clears throat> right, I, I think you've, you've nailed their 11. Because I don't think, other than swapping the fullbacks, I don't think he's got much option there. The centre-back depth isn't good. Um, the midfield depth isn't good. And with Smith-Rowe out, the wing depth isn't good. Uh, he's got Enketia, he's got... Vieira 9 and 10 and he's got those fullbacks and that's kind of it. Um what what do you think right let's cuz you didn't answer this what do you think our 11 will be? Goalkeeper defense stays the same. What's he doing with the midfield and attack? Is he going 4-3-3 is he going 4-2-3-1? I think he's going to pick all three midfielders. But like I say to give himself the opportunity to go yeah, go slightly further ahead if I'm not sure whether he would start that way, but at least to give him the opportunity to push it back to that shape. Right. And if he does that, we know who the wingers will be. If Thiago plays as a 10, 
does he then need to play Jota? Because I I feel like you're right. I think I think he will he will go with Bobby, but he probably should go with Jota. Who do you think he'll play as the nine? I know you you'd go Jota, but what do you think he'll do? Me yeah, and I don't have a problem with that at all. Yeah, I mean, look, it it helps defensively as well, especially if you know because Bobby's very very good defensively. If you've got Bobby with Thiago following up behind him, you're not going to be able to play out centrally. So you're going to have to trust those wide players. Now, Ben White is good in the ball. Zinchenko is very good in the ball. But you are going to play where we want you to play if you're doing that. Um, This game will come down to our discipline. Like, man for man, we are a better team than them. Like... As as good and all as their some of their players are, do any of them start for us? Like, if we're being honest, the goalkeeper doesn't. Depending on none of the defense. Does. Depending on who you want in the two center attacking roles, Odegaard would have a, a shout. I'd say if you're playing four two three one, Odegaard would would start as a ten. Yes. Not enough, though. But it, or you could play Saka as that. Yeah, but it's never, you know, it's never about the the individuals who win the game. It is the shape. It is the system. It is the understanding and the distances and the partnerships and everything else. And that's where we've been horrendous this year, and where they have been good. So that's what needs to change the most. Mm. Like the other thing about if we go four to three one and match them up effectively, you are basically man for man all the way across. And then you're asking, can Fabinho and Henderson, for example, um stick close enough to and win the ball off and keep the ball away from Chaka and Tomas as a two. Just those two against those two should be all right. Like obviously you're going to have Odegaard dropping in and you're not going to ask Matip to follow him all the way out or anything like that. So differences happen. But again, that's where you have your 10 will drop in some of the time. If it's Thiago, even more so. Generally speaking, 1v1, you go to press your one. Everybody's already in position. Everybody should know who they're going to. And then you're asking those fullbacks to play out past Salah and Diaz. It's, mm. it's I, I think See, the thing with their midfield as well. Even though it's a it's a two one, it's Partey, Xhaka, and Odegaard in front. As they build up, it's it becomes one. Partey. Yeah, one and a two with Odegaard and and Xhaka, and that suits us because if they do that, then Thiago can just drop back on Tomas. It's Fab on Odegaard and it's Henderson on Xhaka. And even with his diminished legs, Henderson is still quicker than Xhaka. So as long as he's switched on and disciplined enough, he can take Granite Xhaka out of the game. And then it becomes largely a 1v1 battle between Fab and Odegaard because we know that Thiago will do enough to make life miserable for Thomas Partey. So, I think that is actually the key battle, is Fab versus Odegaard. And I think if Fab wins it, I think they'll struggle to create. I think Odegaard can win that battle and we can still win the game. I don't think they can win the game if Fab wins that battle. Cool to uh, put him back in the team then, isn't it? <laughs> I think he has to start. I think he has to start. I and- because he is... So far above everybody else as a defensive midfielder in our team. I, I think even just by 
natural rotation of, of how quickly the games are. He's probably has to start, to be honest, after not playing too much in midweek, and the others have. Um, I The other thing I would say about Firmino as well in attack, you mentioned Jota obviously loves a, an, an annoyance of an Arsenal player. Well, Firmino loves a goal against Arsenal, mm. and he's, he's oh, been yeah. very, very good in um, you know six-yard box penalty spot sort of areas this season. So again, I don't have any issue playing 4 through 3 and he is the 9. That should be fine. No, neither do I. Neither do I. I think we should win this game. When you play against top teams, form should generally go out the window because these are rivalry games. And I've said this before. There are three great teams in England. Three great clubs, sorry. Three great clubs in England. Liverpool, United and Arsenal. And let's not pretend Spurs, despite the status as a big six club, are on the level of the other three. And you can take the two financially doped state-owned teams and you can put them to one side. And yes, I am classing Chelsea as a state-owned team uh, because that's how Roman got his money, was out out of Putin's pockets. So they financially doped their way into the conversation. But games between Liverpool, Arsenal and United I just think there's there's so much historic rivalry there that form can go out the window. We've gone into games against Arsenal in recent years in iffy form and smacked the life out of them. They did it to us a number of times when they were great under Wenger. We'd roll in, we were in great form, they were playing really badly and they'd beat us 2-1 or they'd get a draw at Anfield or whatever it would be. So I think form can go out the window. We are a better team than them. And nobody is going to convince me that their 11 is better than our 11, or even close to it. Not even close to it. Like, you, you list the five best players between the two clubs. They're all Liverpool players. They just are. And I'm going to back us to win this game 3-1. Have we talked ourselves into this, though? Yes, yes I have, and you've talked <laughs> me into it by saying Thiago is a 10. You've sold me down the river on this one, because there is old school Thiago playing as a 10 for both Barca and Bayern that was an absolute delight to watch, and I'm all on board with pulling that back, because he's in he's in good form as well. I know he was a bit a bit iffy against Brighton, but he has generally been good when he's played this season. Uh, I'm all in on Thiago as a 10. If he's at the 8, it makes, he's going to be great either way. The one thing we will get in this game is we'll get a bit more time on the ball in midfield as well than we did against Brighton because Tomas and Xhaka are not quick players. As good as Tomas is, he he covers ground at his pace and... You can play around him, and I think Thiago's intelligence and mobility and just how quick he is to to see things, I, I think he can have a lot of joy in this game. So I'm going a Thiago masterclass, a Klopp ode to Ollie, a little bit of counter-attack, and I think we open them up. What's your score you've gone for? 3-1 to the Reds. Three, well, we won't be wearing red. But you know what I mean. Oh, uh, three one, three one yeah. rounds. Um... We're going to score. They're going to score. They're going to get really excited and open up a little bit more. We're going to score on a counter. Then they're going to panic, 
And we know Arteta doesn't know how to manage from behind in games that are going against him. And he will throw on a stupid substitution and we'll we'll cave them in on a counter-attack again. I'm really trying not to. Uh, <laughs> fall, fall and here's the other thing for you. Here's the other thing for you. I said to you earlier, if, if he turns around, if Arteta turns around and looks at his bench, the two best players looking back at him are fullbacks. If Klopp turns around and looks at his bench, he's going to have... Darwin Nunes and probably Diogo Jota sitting there looking at him going, can I go on now, please? He's going to have much better options to bring on. And those two against an open Arsenal will cause absolute havoc. I'm going to go 1-0. To who? That's all right. I was about to have to to report (laughs) you again. That would be the second time... In a week, I'd have to report you was, for I, conduct unbecoming. <laughs> I was thinking before the podcast, I would probably end up sitting on the fence and go a draw, but I think we've definitely talked ourselves into a victory here. Yeah. We have. We have talked ourselves into it. Just, just play the pod. And you know whose fault it is? You know whose fault it is? It's Guy Drinkle's fault. Uh, and he's not on to defend himself, so we'll just say that, and we will leave it there. Do you have anything you want to plug before we Put go? midfield piece on this is Anfield, uh, if people wish to delve into a few of the numbers behind, well, up until now, and obviously a very, very marginal look at Rangers. This is mostly Premier League-based, because you know, that's kind of keeping it constant, uh, and looking at where we've been going wrong and what to uh, what to expect in the coming weeks. But other than that, Nothing else of, of major note Liverpool-related. There we go. Follow Carl on Twitter, at Carl Matchett. Read his work on This Is Anfield and mostly The Independent, where the big J journalism takes place. Uh, follow Guy Drinkle, at Guy Drinkle. Don't call him Gus. He doesn't like that. And if you do call him Gus, just, you know, be nice about it. And uh, follow me at EPL Index. If anyone's wondering why I was off Twitter for a week, um, I, I think it's because I told Barry Glendennan to stop being an arsehole and I think he had himself a big cry because I noticed the other day he did also block me and so it would make sense. That was kind of the last uh, real interaction I had with anybody uh, other than a tweet to Henry Jackson about how I thought Jack Grealish was overrated, um, which, I, I mean, unless Jack Grealish reported me for being mean, um, I assume it was the Barry Glenn Denon thing. And all I did was say, stop being an arsehole. I didn't tell him he was an arsehole, uh, despite the fact that he is an arsehole. Um, so, yeah, I assume that's what it was. But, uh, yeah, we move. See you next time. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement. And we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go... We'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, 
and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.